Hello and welcome to Leviathan News. Today is June 5th, 2023. And the big story, unfortunately, from this weekend has been the atomic wallet hack, which at last record has seen more than $35 million worth of crypto been stolen out of individual users' wallets that they thought were secure. And this started happening on Friday. We saw reports from uh, Zach XPT and also from uh, uh, Taylor Monahan uh, starting to interact with people who were saying that their atomic wallet balances were being transferred out. And with more investigation, they found that it was a widespread problem and that a, a lot of capital had been transferred uh, from these wallets. And as this progressed over the weekend, there was very little information that was released from Atomic Wallet. They've still only posted two tweets since the whole hack happened. And in total, it looks like there was a malicious software update that was forcibly pushed onto users' wallets. And as soon as they opened it up, uh, it then took the private keys and it transferred them to a malicious party who started stealing all their crypto. So really unfortunate situation. I've got to admit, these make me nervous. Like I uh, have talked about how I got off MetaMask and moved towards trying out both Frame and Rabi. Really liked Rabi. Frame's pretty good too. Um, but you know, I feel like both of them are so new that who knows what bugs are lurking underneath ready to steal all my funds Like with all these. Yeah, man. Gary, I've been on a, a same uh, journey, um, especially like since all this ledger stuff has been going out, coming out just to figure out like, well, what does it mean to be safe? And I think like, okay, look, we, we can start with, okay, there's like software wallets that can push a malicious um, update and steal all your money like Atomic. And that's like horrifying in its own way. But all of us like crypto veterans might be thinking like, well, that's why you have a, a hardware wallet. You never let your private keys leave. But like, first of all, we learned from Ledger that like that assumption is not a strong assumption. And then secondly, like, so, so it turns out that Rabi is not actually open source. Like they make a lot of claims, but like kind of like some of the key security kernels like are still private, which, you know, isn't malicious or a bad thing, but that brings the first question of like, okay, well, if things aren't open source, then like, are you safe? And then the next question is, is even if they're open source, can you read code? Can you audit any of this stuff? Like, can you tell if it's safe or not? And um, look, like, I don't have anything smart to say here right now. Like, I, I wasn't really scared when Luna fell apart. I wasn't really scared when I, like, lost way too much of my money in OM. I wasn't scared for FTF, any of that. But, like, I'm scared now. Because yeah, remember, we talked about how even if you have, like, a ledger or a Trezor or anything like that, uh, they can always push a, a software update that if you just install it without knowing about it, uh, it could... Uh, add security uh, it could reduce the security guarantees that your device is providing and so it's really unfortunate what happened with atomic i mean this is affecting quite a lot of people uh, and it brings back questions about how did this software update get pushed in the first place who was the one who did it was it an inside job which i mean if it's a software update it, it potentially could be like how was this added into a system and then uh, pushed out to you know, the 5 million users that Atomic Wallet has. I think we'll be seeing a lot of answers uh, come out over the next few weeks once they have more information about the hack. I think it's even uh, 
going back to a bit to what to Gert and Haim uh, was saying, uh, I think it speaks of uh, an even broader issue of about uh, the whole wallet's uh, narrative within uh, crypto. Like, uh, first of all, it keeps so many people out of the space because it's too technical for them and they don't want to learn about it or they don't even begin to trust it. And uh, <clears throat> for users who are willing to do it, as we can see, it can all, all, all kinds of problems can uh, pop up. I had a talk with uh, uh, this past uh, with uh, talked about the concept of uh, social recovery uh, wallets, and I think that the industry should start uh, really uh, pushing the pace up uh, on that front and uh, really creating a way which is more secure and uh, tr tr trustable, or however you say that. Uh, between the audience, between the people and the, and the devs, uh, like, like we should really be able to trust the technology simply, not uh, with uh, all these challenges. And uh, I think we can do it faster as an industry. Yeah. So one way that you can actually uh, kind of keep your crypto safer is by using a Gnosis safe. And uh, we actually use that here at Leviathan. I know most other teams use that as well, too. You can create a a multi-signature account where you can have two or three signatures required or three or five. So even if you have one wallet like this atomic wallet that's uh, you know, taken over by a malicious actor, you still could have two other wallets which are safe and maybe in cold storage or something that would allow you to uh, keep your assets safe. And speaking of Gnosis doubt, <clears throat> they actually announced this morning that they're going to be launching a payments card. So it looks like you will be able to add money to a safe and then use account abstraction to spend money in real life uh, through a crypto wallet. And this would be really beneficial to DAOs and other Web3 crypto projects that are using safe and keep money there uh, because you can essentially turn it into a bank. Yeah, this is yeah, I mean, wild. I think at least in America, there's like four or five things left that um, you can't use like a a card style payment, um, you know, depending on like your landlord or your bank, like things like mortgage or rent, uh, like utility bills, that kind of thing. But let's like just put those like as exceptions for a moment and consider like with these kinds of solutions, especially like backed by a brand as trusted as safe, like we are actually talking about a world where crypto replaces the financial system and like where you can actually debank yourself because like when you need food and like human things like your crypto can manifest in the real world through this card and so look like i'm so bullish on this kind of stuff i almost think that it's like too good to be true <laughs> like it's like an actual use for crypto um but like i want it i want it so bad and like as an american i know we'll never get it but like this is this is what we need you know i think we'll have it at some point in the future we'll get we'll get decent legislation um <laughs> which apparently is on the books so we saw some tweets go out over the weekend uh, about a new U.S. crypto bill that would add some definitions of what a decentralized network is and also um, kind of fix a two regulatory part, like two regulatory administration system for crypto, where both the SEC and the CTFC would both have jurisdiction based on uh, who is dealing with the assets at the time and uh we're probably going to discuss this in a longer interview later this week but there's been both good and bad 
opinions coming out of this about about what's happening. It's good in the sense that it, it provides a stronger framework for these digital assets to raise capital and then launch their networks. But at the same time, it it does create it does potentially create more problems about what the SEC and the CTFC can do. And uh, it, it creates, again, like a, a, a two agency regulatory system as, as permanent law. Yeah, I mean, my preferred approach would be more like New York State is doing, where it treats crypto as an entirely separate asset class in a different regulatory jurisdiction. But you know, that being said, uh, this is another, still strikes me as one of these too good to be true type bills. Because if this goes through, um, we would actually see this kind of regulation by um, you know just uh, the SEC attacking random small projects somewhat go away the like we would actually see something like a meaningful framework it kind of ties back to the thesis that flywheel defi always says which is that like the united states makes a lot of mistakes but ultimately tends to get these things right in the long run yeah and it, it seems that they're trying to just wrap the questions about crypto into the existing you know sec ctfc system that we have already and uh but it's a, apparently it's a good start uh, I'm not a lawyer. You looked uh, indifferent, maybe? No, look, I, I mean, I, I think that, like, if we want to have, like, a sober conversation about regulation, like, the reality is any regulation, anything, like, I don't care if they say that Ether is a security and you need to be an accredited investor to touch it and da, 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 anything is a game changer. Because if there's any single regulation, that is the playbook for businesses to get involved with crypto. And like, look, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I would be upset if they do like really erroneous things that keep like individuals like, you know, boxed out of the system and like, or, or whatever, but it doesn't matter. Like what matters is that JP Morgan has like their, you know, $2 billion of like CapEx and people and like already resources that they put into crypto, but haven't launched anything because they don't want to lose their banking license. Like if we get regulation, things change and we move the ball forward as opposed to like continuing this holding pattern. Now, that being said, like, I don't think this is going to pass. Like I, I say this every time we talk about politics, like crypto is a niche issue for people that don't give a shit at all. And the only people that give a shit about it are like people that are using it to score political points to stop crypto. Like we're on the wrong side of this, not the right side of this. And so I just, I, I don't know, like, I love this community and I love the people around, but I just think that we're, we've so lost, like, the, the general global narrative on what crypto is and that, like, I just can't see this Congress that's as broken as it is, like, coming together on such a niche issue that is considered by the people to be, like, for scammers and drug dealers and that kind of stuff. And so, look, I would love yeah. this to pass. I just don't think it's going to. I'm always pessimistic about Congress, but I have to admit, considering how like uh, like what Neanderthals they are, like the attention which with which they give cryptocurrency, like occasionally like some glimmers of intelligence sneak through, and this bill strikes me as one of those. And also, okay. when, it's, uh, when elections are uh, like you know uh, coming up, don't you think that uh, these kinds of uh, niche subjects tend to get uh, a lot more attention? And sometimes things no no things there. things get worse in election years because that's when you have to boil things down to sound bites and talking points. Um, but you know, by and large, like by and large, like every now and then, it surprises me when regulators like actually have done their homework and put forward meaningful subjects. Uh, I agree with your point, Rex, that like given what our industry has done, we don't deserve something this good. 
but it's just <laughs> nice to see that we're actually getting something this good. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I want it. Like my whole career and like life and net worth is like predicated on crypto working out. <laughs> but um, I just, I, I like in the next two years, I think it's much more likely that we're moving to Dubai than this bill is passing. <laughs> well, it's really important in the long run. And, you know, we the reason we talk about U.S. so heavily is that when you look at capital formation on a global level, the majority of it happens inside the United States, uh, both from company creation and then also raising, you know, just general capital, uh, and also people with money. They, I mean, they want to live in the United States. The United States has more multimillionaires living in the United States than anywhere else in the entire world, and so it's it's important that we have a a clear set of regulations so that people can actually deploy capital, which is very important. Um, and coming back to DeFi, because there's a bunch of DeFi stuff that happened that this week, and we love our DeFi. Uh, we'll start with uh, my favorite story from over the weekend, which is that uh, Sam K, Sam Kazemian, went on a, uh, a door hacks, kind of uh, how would I describe it? It was a hackathon, like live stream, and he announced Frax ETH v2, which is going to be a fully trustless and decentralized validator borrowing market. No bond requirements uh, are going to be there, so you don't have to put any. You only have to put up ETH and run validators, uh, and you'll potentially be able to run a node uh, and then borrow thirty ETH against it for only two for only putting up two ETH, which is a huge amount of leverage and something that no other uh, LSD service is able to provide so far. It's so absolutely it's huge. Yeah, yeah. So it, it works similar to um, let me let me think about how I can describe this best. Uh, if you think about a validator, right? You're you're essentially putting up capital and then you're borrowing ETH. So what Frax ETH v2 is going to do is create a um, almost like an Ave market for borrowing ETH into validators, or like a Fraxlin market as they call it. And what this means is that there's going to be a, an interest rate that you pay to borrow the ETH. You know, and then that interest gets paid to uh, the people who are supplying the ETH to to run these validators, and so the the interest rate is the essentially the staking rate or close to it. So let's say that the interest rate is like five percent, but you're running a validator and you're able to make like twelve percent or something. Uh, you're able to capture that more efficiently and make more profit than everybody else. So it's really going to create a kind of baseline. Wait, hold on. The whole purpose of like how we've constructed Ethereum is that like a validator shouldn't be able to get like massively more better APR than any other validator. Well, it comes down to like MEV, like how you're providing yeah, MEV and other things. Yeah. Like, you know, there's there's more that just goes in than than running the the, the node. I mean, we know this now. So, but I wish I was getting twelve percent of my validator. It was closer to like zero. Well, I, I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. But like yeah. the there there is a um, the with the Fraxeth system, the most efficient and profitable validators will benefit from it the most. Yeah, so, my point is that like if we have a system where there's efficient and profitable validators, Ethereum is fucked. Why? Like that's the whole like centralization around like uh, like if everybody is like earning the same APR but somebody's earning more, eventually proof of stake will centralize on the one person earning more. Like this is like the entire conversation around proof of stake is around and around like MEV boost and like proposer builder separation is like it is critically important that validators 
are all playing on the same field and not like able to gain incremental like uh, returns based on any other staker or else like the security guarantees of Ethereum start to break down. But I think the system is pretty agnostic to it. All it's saying is that, you know, we're providing a lending market where you can borrow ETH and run. Yeah, I, I understand Frax's system. I understand everything that Frax is trying to say. What I'm saying is that like that is like incongruent with like how Ethereum is built because like there's not there. If there was a way to borrow a bunch of ETH and then gain outsized staking returns, like we, <laughs> Ethereum would fall apart, whether or not Frax is involved or not. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, the, the system as we have it has not been falling apart right now. But, yeah, right. Because it doesn't work that just, way. It works the way I'm talking about. Yeah. Would it just reach equilibrium? Like exactly. at a certain point, at a certain yeah. point, like enough There's, money would flow to it that the any gains would be evened out, right? Yeah, and then it becomes exactly the same as like Rocket Pool or Stakewise or any of the. Well, other. that's not true because Rocket Pool requires you to buy RPL in order to stay. Okay, there. I don't want to rehash this whole like, argument again. Anyways, there's there's different. There, the Fraxy model looks like a big improve. At least I think it's a big improvement on the system. So question for um, yes. you, Sam, um, and if you don't know it, you can ask the other Sam. If I have SFRAX ETH, would I need to migrate in this uh, to a V2 no. or is it going to... No, you don't have to do anything. Cool. No, nothing at all. Really, the, really, the, the only thing that it does is it creates this new uh, market for borrowing ETH into validators. And then anybody else with the validator can come along and hook up their validator into the system and then borrow ETH against it. Yeah. So let's say, and, and it turns and it turns running a validator into a loan, right? So like you have eight ETH and you borrow, what, 24 ETH. Uh, you now have like a, an 80% LTV loan or 20% LTV loan. Uh, and as long as you don't get slashed down to say like, you know, of your original ETH, as long as you don't get slashed like three to four ETH, you can keep that loan and you can keep paying it down. Uh, with with the interest really should match what you're making in your uh, Ethereum rewards. Uh, so as long as that, as long as you don't like get slashed, you're cool, and you, your uh, validator won't get ejected. So that's the one piece I feel pretty comfortable with so far. Running a subpar validator is at least I haven't gotten slashed. Yeah. <laughs> but what, how are you running a subpar validator? What, what does that mean? Because my I have Xfinity and they keep turning my internet off at random times. <laughs> uh, okay. I had a court case against them, but I couldn't make it because I had to be on this live stream. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what, one, <laughs> is this a real story? True story. Uh, one, one thing I that something different though. Uh, one thing one thing that I've really enjoyed about this upcoming Fraxy system is that. Uh, the FraxDAO will no longer have any control over the the validators who are creating FraxEth, right? And by creating a, a fully trustless and decentralized borrowing market, uh, questions around like, is FraxEth the security? Probably are less because there is no centralized authority like Lido where you have, you know, what, 32 operators uh, or even Rocketpool, right? Where you have a centralized uh, uh, company that is, you know, forcing you to buy RPL. Uh, what? what? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there, there's, there's again, there's a bunch of assumptions which go away. Uh, we can talk. We can have Sam or Drake on later and talk about this. On yeah, let's just keep going one-sided. Prax is the best and solve everything about e-staking. Okay, it is. It is. I'm, <laughs> this is my line, but uh, I'm also you know sponsored by Fraxdale, so uh, we'll move on. Uh, I think we can agree that uh, LSD or LST Phi is becoming a real interesting subject. Yes, very. And yeah. also, I think that. Uh, you know, I, I think that I definitely agree with uh, Haim about the risks 
that uh, all these kinds of all, all this game around uh, LSDs is uh, you know there, there's so much money to be made and the different actors within the space are uh, acting on it and Frax is definitely a big player on that front I can definitely understand their uh, angle on it and uh, for sure I can also understand the the risk that it poses for us uh, in the long term because Garrett for example if you if you just said that uh, for a guy who is technical as yourself it's still difficult to to do it the old-fashioned way and do it like uh, the way it should be done in order for us to save the decentralization so as an industry uh, it's another thing I think that we should consider and not have the kind of short-term incentives that uh, are around this game uh, affect our technology uh, true ideals on how we see it a uh, hundred years from now, for example. That's what I mean. So another project, uh, we'll get to you and a Garrett, or actually we'll go to Garrett right now. So over the weekend, we had a curve uh, proposal that was passed. They've added Steth or they're going to add Steth and they're going to be giving it an initial cap of $150 million. So, wow, that's, that's great. Curve USD is going to be flying this week. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, uh, I have some exposure to both Frax, ETH, and Steph, and I've yet to try out Curve USD. For some reason, I just feel like more comfortable trying it out with Steph, um, so I might give it a go. So the reason that this is like important is that each of the peg... So there's two parts to this vote. The first was to add an onboard W Steph as collateral. Uh, the second was to up the peg keeper debt ceiling. So each of the four peg keeper pools... had a debt ceiling of 2.5 million. And if you look, there's about 10 million total Curve USD in all the pools. So it's kind of like, uh, basically like it's kind of running at its capacity. And if more people start depositing the other forms of collateral, you could actually end up in a situation where Curve USD de-pegged above a dollar, um, which I'm sure no one holding Curve USD would mind if Curve USD floated above that. But um, you know, for the sake of the system, like once these ceilings are lifted and once there's a bit more capacity, we're going to see a number of parameters start to stabilize somewhat. Like one of the key ones is the borrow rate. The borrow rate, um, because of the kind of like lower um, TVL and all the peg keeper pools, means that relatively small size transactions can drastically affect the borrow rate. So you could be sitting there at 2.5% and see it spike to 5% or something. Um, as we get more capacity in these pools, we're going to see the entire system hopefully stabilize. Um, but all metrics looking good. Curve USD keeping its peg to around a dollar peg keeper functioning. Uh, really exciting stuff. So Amazing. when we when we're, for Curve USD, when we're talking about onboarding new collateral, just as a reminder for basics how this works. So what we're saying is that you deposit your wrap stake ETH into, um, and so you deposit your wrap stake ETH, you get back Curve USD, and then your like kind of collateral position becomes this um, like unbalanced LP between Curve USD and wrap stake ETH based on the pricing. Right. So, yeah, you continue to like for the wrapped stake ETH as opposed to like Steph itself and for um, SFRAX ETH, like you can mm -hmm. th those tokens become increasingly valuable over time. Right. Mm -hmm. As they earn the yield, you can trade that back. So your collateral continues to earn that. You get that. Um, and then uh, you also have your curved USD, which you can do whatever you like with. Yeah. Got it. But so the important thing is that like from the user experience, it feels like. Not Ave, but like, I don't know, Silo, because it's um, isolated, right? Whatever. Um, the, the point is... Isolated. Well, that, that doesn't even matter. So the point is, it feels like borrowing, but on the back end, there's this extra, like, 
LP position where that is like doing the. I, I guess like some value. Yeah. 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 I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around like, how does this look and feel different than like, just like the traditional standard borrowing. Um, so the concept of lending out uh, assets that earn interest is not necessarily novel. Like Alchemix mm -hmm. has been somewhat doing that with yeah. their whole like- we remember that from 3AC, like, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd say the novel UA user experience mechanism is simply the soft liquidations. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not like losing a lot of collateral. And there have been some people posting interesting screenshots like from the people who kind of aped in and tested with this like early vault of being like, holy crap, like I was like max degen- was in liquidation all weekend and barely lost anything. So that part's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Also, what you, what a huge uh, increase from uh, ten million from the first ten million to one hundred and fifty. Yeah. Uh, and there's now. just a, there's a ton of stuff lying around with nothing to do. So like, we'll see what happens. But like the my assumption is that a lot of it's gonna just try and like yolo into it just because. I think and it's also very interesting to see how the market is gonna react uh, to to this one. Very interesting. Yeah, but I mean, who knows? Like, it might also be the case that, like, Steph is going to be leaving for Fraxeth or something. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think Lido is going anywhere ever. Yeah, so. I don't think Lido is going anywhere. I mean, it, we're, Frax still only has like a 2.5% market share versus Steph's like 50, I believe. So, long way to go. Uh, I want to I bring up a, a website for a product which just launched today. We, this is a, product that is by uh, DeFi dude who is from uh, lobsters and he's been talking about this in chat for a couple of days and it's called build a dev and it's essentially a product hunt like experience for web3 so uh, anybody can come and they can create a project if we scan down here we can see that like leviathan news is here and uh, you can drop some information about leviathan news and put it here and then people can come and upvote it uh, so we've created Leviathan, and we're actually going to share this in uh, in the link below. So you can come and give us an upvote. Uh, but it's pretty cool. There's a bunch of different projects here already. It just launched today. So uh, definitely a, a new site to, to add to your bookmarks and, uh, and be aware of. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Uh, guys, so lots of stuff happened in the uh, in the meat space. Over the week. Oh, actually, you know what? We got one more DeFi story to talk about. So this is something that uh, I've been thinking about kind of in the back of my head, but I saw someone actually make a proposal over the weekend, and that was to reduce the uh, ETH staking amount. So the amount of collateral that you need to have staked for ETH from 32 down to one ETH over the next eight years. And this was first proposed by PHABC. And I think this is a pretty important discussion to have because when e-staking went live, the price of ETH was around 100 bucks. So you could get a validator for about $3,200, which was very reasonable. And uh, you know, pretty much anybody could come along and buy enough ETH to, to stake into it. Now, the cost is uh, significantly higher. And with like 2,000 ETH or $2,000 per ETH, you're looking at about $64,000. It's a lot of money and it keeps a lot of people who might want to uh, stake at home from staking. And so what PHABC says is that we should have like a halvening uh, for the amount of collateral that's required, bringing it down from 32 down to one over the next eight years. 
because he says that that anybody should be able to, to to stake really like if you you know if you have one eth that should be enough and he also talks about some of the other hardware requirements that are getting you know better uh, and just how easy it is and how cheap it is to buy the hardware. But at, at the same time, you have to invest $64,000 to be able to do solo staking. Uh, so I think it's an interesting proposal. Uh, what do you guys think about it? I mean, I, I think it's like a much ado about nothing. And I think like what, <laughs> like we made this 32 Ethereum decision for a purpose, right? And it wasn't because it was $3,200. It wasn't a financial decision it's a computer science decision and it's about like like the, the amount of signatures that you have and the amount of signature aggregation and processing you need to do and like you know I, I mean i don't have any problem with like people having these discussions but um i do think that like we're just rehashing old territory here and like you can go back to 20 whatever 19 i guess when they're like doing beacon chain specs and like go read this exact same conversation like literally this exact same conversation about like the same thing about centralization and people want to participate and like, okay, well, like that has really important computer science implications. And, you know, the choice we made was to go with 32 to make for Ethereum reasons. And then if the small people want to participate, we have liquid staking. And so we can readdress that, but like just to sit here and say that like 32 ETH is a problem when we need to change it is like really irresponsible because it, totally allies like all of the reasons we chose to choose to 32 ETH. Well, I don't think it would change anything about the, I mean, look, it, the, let's just assume that 10 years in the future, the, the price of ETH is like $10,000 or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's a significant, it's going to be close to, or even $20,000. I mean, that could be over $500,000 just to run an ETH node. Yeah, but like it's great, like people, like you don't that's not your only option right like you have liquid staking you have distributed validator technology you have um like yeah, but you could still have you could still have liquid staking even if it was one eth yeah but what but like we're acting like just like changing it from 32 eth to one eth or do happenings is like a trivial change but it, it's like a full rewrite of the consensus specs so hypothetically um like if assuming the technical issues are uh, solvable, which you know I'm just hand waving here, like um, any like liquid staking derivative like that you're using in theory has to extract some value. So it's basically like saying that you can participate if you're poor, but there's a higher tax. Yeah, or yeah, but I mean, like we're like that is what distributed validator technology allows. Basically, says like, okay, I don't have 32 ETH, but in fact, none of us do. We all actually only have eight ETH. But using distributed validator technology, we can create a single validator. You know, like there there are multi billion dollar startups that have been funded to create this stuff, and just to like, I, but those startups you know, are only going to be successful if they take a cut from us, right? Otherwise, if we're just getting the raw ETH, like that startup has no way of ex, you know extracting value. Ask Uniswap. Hmm. No, it's yeah. possible. I mean, I'm. I mean, I'm just saying, like, conceptually, if you can democratize it more and let more poor people participate, that's, like, a better system. Yeah, yeah, sure. But I, what I'm saying is there's trade-offs, right? And, like, mm -hmm. you don't get to just say, like... Oh, yeah, hey, it's not wanna... like you wave a magic wand and it yeah. works, right? <laughs> yeah, like, if, if we could have the exact same Ethereum we have today with no performance changes or anything, but just reduce the staking amount from 32 to 0.001, I'm totally for that. But, like, right, right. you're just saying it's not what happened. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. 
but I do, I do like think it's an aspirational goal for us. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I mean, it is one thing that the Bitcoiners really latch on to is that you know you can mine with anything, even if you you can even if you can't ever find a block, right? You can still mine with something, uh, and you can also run a full node validator for Bitcoin on like a Raspberry Pi, right? Yeah, but you can do that with ETH. Yeah, I know you can do with ETH as well too. <laughs> and you don't need to stake to run a node. You're still securing the network. It's just you're not proposing block. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, there's also, do you guys use Etherscan a lot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, for power users like you guys, probably going to be pretty impressed because they've added some advanced filtering options in their new beta. Uh, have you guys tried this out yet at all? It's been a crazy weekend, so I haven't yet, but I'm going to be diving in. I'm so excited about this. So, so it allows you to filter by transaction type, function name, duration, amounts, assets, from and to addresses. Uh, really should allow for some great on-chain detective work. And I, it's a long time coming, <laughs> to say the least. So, yeah, I mean, look, like... <laughs> It is like so hard to overstate like the incredible value that like Etherscan gives to us. And like, look, like we have Etherscan and then it is like next to it, we have like Nansen, Arkham Intelligence, like all of these companies that are again, building billion dollar institutions to basically put like colors on Etherscan. And like Etherscan is not only saying like, we're going to continue to keep doing this for free, but all of those like big data tools that you're getting, like we're, we're just going to make that a filter for you. Like it's, it's incredible. It's awesome. And um, you know, the reality is that like most of us aren't really doing analysis deep enough to need it. But for those of us that are like, it's, it's, this is what Ethereum is supposed to be. I think it's very important for uh, essential tools like uh, Etherscan to become friendlier to users and to be able to also uh, the whole uh, the whole industry should should look at the onboarding uh, process as something which should be uh, facilitated as much as possible and I think uh, these are exactly good steps uh, towards it. But these are the exact opposite. This is making Etherscan better for advanced users, not for noobs. <laughs> Yeah, scaring away noobs. <laughs> yeah. I think sometimes if, if you can ask more questions and at least you can understand, I'm not saying that every noob can uh, go on Etherscan and extract the full uh, value of it for sure. But I do think that, uh, you know, if at least you can start researching with uh, something uh, in a more efficient way uh, and you're curious about it, I think it definitely helps. So the other news that we're going to end on today is that uh, Uniswap has a new CEO. So Hayden Adams has come out as the uh, community director for China, Mike Hanlon, after a video emerged over the weekend where uh, a <laughs> conference, if you want to call it that, was set up uh, with lots of people, actually. And a whole team was there. <laughs> with Uniswap logos, a, a massive event, lots of marketing, singers. I, I don't even know how to describe it. They were chanting Uniswap at the end, loads of videos coming out of this. Uh, and, you know, it looks like they've actually done some cool stuff. Uh, they're establishing the uh, community systems in the Asia Pacific region. They even copied the website and had a bad translation into Chinese. Pretty crazy. And then today, uh, Hayden came out 
and said that he is Mike Hamlin as a joke. Um, I will say that Tom Howard did make a irrelevant tweet below that uh, they're going to take this first tweet and just use it as part of their proof of scam uh, so that every day people will continue to lose their life savings. And he says that they're going to get a take like $3 billion as a result. Maybe, maybe being a little bit hyperbolic, but um, I don't know. Yeah. Jesus, Tom Howard, what the hell? Like, Tom, are you kidding? Do you, does Tom Howard realize that like by the time we're done recording here, I could have a fake screenshot of Hayden Adams saying literally whatever I want. Like, what do like, I mean, you could, you could, you're you rich, could. you're not allowed to have fun on Twitter. That's Tom's rule. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but pretty crazy how much they, like, I would say there's some balls on these people for. Well, what's the scam? Do we even know? <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a Ponzi. Like, look, let me bring up this last uh, thing because it was very clear in the, in the last video uh, where they're talking about like the different levels and uh, I'll just I'll just make this full screen. So look here. So you have like 15% direct sharing, 8% indirect sharing, and then 2% per layer at three to eight layers. Uh, and then all these community rewards. So. Hey, hey, which do you like better? That, this or the uni token? That is yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not a Ponzi. This, in America, this is well protected by statute. We multi -level call this multi-level marketing. Yes. It's called the uni token. The <laughs> to simply do a Uniswap conference and sell uni tokens. Like you can't make this stuff up, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, I don't I mean this is silly and whatever, but like the shit happens in the real world. Like I, I've, I've been to one of these conferences. Yeah, I promise you there's like a, a fake Coca-Cola conference that is like selling tickets and doesn't, you know, like I, just, I went to, I went to one of these when I was in when I was in Moscow I got invited like one of my friends was like oh hey they're having this crypto event can you like go and like check it out and I go and it's exactly like this they they do it at some like random hotel there's a bunch of like really well dressed people in suits like talking to like the most normie older it's mostly targeted at older people who don't understand anything and they're like talking about like the systems and the networks and whatever using all these big words and you can just tell that it's a glorified ponzi scheme it's really weird i left after like 20 minutes couldn't deal with it i don't know i mean look like if you squint hard enough like that's what a lot of talks at eat denver sound like <laughs> no i'm kidding but um the look man like again i just i see this as our community reacting to this to like something that's like pretty normal and like scammy and counterfeity for sure. But like, you know, I, I just, I see this as like the problem with having international brands is like people that are in communities that are not like native to that brand can get really taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that as a crypto problem. I think this Tom guy is like really taking himself too seriously to Probably. like, yeah, scold Hayden like that. And like, I just I think that's something to be aware of and for all of us to be smart about to protect ourselves. But like this is like a fun story, not like anyone did it. Like the, Hayden, continue to shitpost. <laughs> yes, please. We love shitposting. Well, this is gonna wrap it up for today. There's some other stories. FTX asked the uh for well, FTX got into a lot of stuff. They they uh what is this? The, the Mets, I believe it was the Mets Stadium. Uh yeah, the New York Met Museum has agreed to return. 550,000 in FTX donations. 
Also, FTX alleges that Genesis owes $3.9 billion in cash and crypto uh, as they were engaging in fraudulent business models. Um, so a bunch of stuff. The lawsuits around FTX are just going to continue to grow and it's just going to be a stinking pile of <laughs> horseshit. Thank you, Sam, for ruining everything. Like the one bad Sam. One bad Sam. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. I'm here with my team, thank you so much for being here, both you and then everybody listening at home. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another episode. Thank you, guys. Have a great day. Uh, peace till the tie returns. Leviathan bless you. <laughs> <laughs>